So anyway, uh, the resurrection, uh, things that are about the resurrection that are essential to Christianity. Um, you know, as, as I've just engaged with people, and, and I'm specifically mean Christians, about the resurrection, you can actually get a number of responses. Um, and many people understand the resurrection, for the most part, simply as a great miracle. And they don't really grasp the, the absolute necessity of it. Uh, Well-intended Christians are content, you know, sort of pointing to the cross uh, and Jesus' work there. They look to a number of passages that confirm uh, all that they believe about it, which is all good. But they look at the resurrection simply as a happy ending to a tragic story. Just a happy ending. Uh, but that's, that's not the best way to look at it. It is true that the resurrection uh, at least produces happy results for us as believers, uh, but it is actually a horrifying reality for those who reject him because as Acts chapter 10 verse 42 says, that he rose in order to judge the living and the dead. And um, so I think we should examine it carefully and look at it properly and not just reduce it to a happy ending. The resurrection is actually the validation of Christ's identity, his teaching, and his sacrifice. Uh, it's the very means by which God distributes all of the benefits of the cross. The new covenant with all of its benefits, its, its promises, all of the declarations, they're tethered to the resurrection, tethered to it, they're tied to it. So everything we cling to as the people of Christ is actually dependent, it depends upon the resurrection. Christ did not rise from the dead. Everything he promised would fall to the ground. Uh, everything declared would be a lie. Without the resurrection, the cross of Christ was really just a senseless act of political revenge that was motivated by envy and fear, and it would be void of all redemptive value. Without the resurrection, Jesus would be a fraud, and we would be lost. So I think that a proper theology of the resurrection is in order. So to get us going, uh, I'd like to read briefly Paul's defense for the resurrection, and then what he lays out as the consequences, what they would be if Christ uh, actually did not rise from the dead. And then we'll go ahead and look at some of the promises and declarations that depend upon this historical event. So if you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading to you out of the New King James Version, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 26. Sean, were you here this morning? Did you use this text this morning? Okay. I was hoping you used the Bible in some fashion. <laughs> All right. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due, due time. 
For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that death could not hold your son in the grave. And by that, then withhold all the benefits of his atonement, of his sacrifice. But they were distributed, Lord, by him vacating the tomb. Lord, thank you for that. I pray that uh, for those of us this morning that believe that you would use all of these promises and declarations to encourage us. And for, Lord, those that are outside of the faith, Lord, that by your grace you would you'd bring them in. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, you know, from the passage that we just looked at, Paul initially provides an eyewitness account as a defense for the resurrection of Christ. Uh, was your stuff recorded? Okay, so Sean's apologetic was recorded. I'm not going to go into all of that this morning, and Sean uh, would probably do a better job than me, so I encourage you to get on Is it on the website? Is that what we're doing? It's just recorded? Okay. Uh, We'll try to make it available to you somehow. It's on the website. Okay. So to begin all of that, you know, Paul was naming multiple people who saw Jesus after his death, many of whom, you know, they were with Jesus for 40 days. They were eating with him. Uh, They had uh, received teaching from him. Uh, about the kingdom of God. We find that in Acts 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 3. And at one time, as Paul says, Jesus revealed himself to over 500 people. And Paul says, most of whom were still alive uh, when he was writing the letter, but some had fallen asleep. Uh, By falling asleep, he's using a euphemism because Christians, their death is so temporary. It's more like sleep. But he does mean that they've died. And then Paul's defense for the resurrection as an historical event is followed by him reasoning with the Corinthians about what the implications would be if Christ did not actually rise from the dead. And he basically says it would be devastating. Paul makes it clear that all of Christianity is tethered to the resurrection of of Jesus. It was no mere happy ending to a tragic story. Really is kind of the beginning, isn't it? That's really where it begins. So this morning, I'd like to explore some of the, as I've said, the declarations, the benefits and promises that were validated by the resurrection, things that are dependent on it. Uh, There are many more uh, in the New Testament than I can give you this morning. Uh, I think I'm going to cover six or seven this morning. Um, 
but I'll end on my normal time. I'm not going to do an hour each. Here they are, if you want to record them. It is only by the resurrection that we can know that Jesus is the Son of God. There is no other way. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. It is by the resurrection that God has granted repentance and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 5, verses 30 through 31. Number three, it's through the resurrection that we experience regeneration. 1 Peter 1, 3. It is by the resurrection that we're justified. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It is because of his resurrection that we'll be raised from the dead. We'll follow in his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Because of the resurrection, eternal life has been extended to the believer. 1 Peter 1, 4. And then last, it's by the resurrection that we are assured of eternal justice. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. That one of late is becoming my favorite. Let's take a look. We know that Jesus is the unique Son of God because of the resurrection. Listen to how Paul puts this in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 4. This is introduction in his letter. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, he says, by way of the resurrection from among the dead. By the resurrection, it was made clear that Jesus wasn't blowing smoke when he claimed to be the Son of God. It validates it. And one of the most, I think, amazing remarks that Jesus made in the Gospels is, it's found in John 10. Listen carefully. He said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. John 10, 17 through 18. You know, in the text there, it says that many who were listening to him thought that he was a madman until he walked out of the tomb on Sunday morning. But don't misunderstand what Jesus was saying here. He says, no one had the power, to t- no one has the power to take my life from me. The Jews didn't. The Romans didn't. Satan certainly does not. Jesus is saying that he decided when and how he would die. And in his sovereignty, he probably could have went on to say that I selected the nails too and the tree that would be used for a cross. I'm managing all of this for the salvation of men. So not only was he in control of his death, he also had the power to take his life back after he was brutally murdered. And it's all in accord with his father's command, two of them. Imagine that in the conversation in eternity The father speaking to the son, son, give your life a ransom for sinners. And then after three days, take your life back again. And Jesus never disobeys his dad. Amen. It's sweet. Only the son of God has the power to do that. And so Jesus was declared, as the text says, to be the son of God with power when he walked out of the tomb. It's the determining sign, okay, to prove Jesus's deity and his sonship to the father. 
You remember in the Gospels that the Pharisees, you know, they're always pressing Jesus. And one of the things they were pressing about was a sign to verify his identity. Who do you think you are? And if you are who you think you are, then show us a sign to prove it. And he pointed them to his future resurrection. He said, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and for three nights, so too the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and for three nights. Matthew 12, 39 through 40. He said again, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. John 2, 19. So this declaration of Jesus was, it's interesting, it was used against him Uh, in that bogus trial with Caiaphas. And it's interesting because, you know, a few men gave false witness, contrary to the law of God, to condemn the Son of God. Seems like there were wiser things to do. Yeah. Be that as it may, Jesus proved that he was the Son of God when he walked out of the tomb. It is also by the resurrection that God granted to us the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. Listen to Peter's declaration when he was, he was confronting the Jewish high council. It really would be like confronting Congress. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. So Jesus was risen and he was exalted in order to that he might give repentance and forgiveness to Israel. I think a good way to look at the resurrection is like a dam breaking. You know, holding back all of the benefits, all of the blessing, the dam as it were, all the redemptive realities of the cross. But then when Jesus vacated the tomb, all the redemptive things of the cross came bursting out. That's what happened when he rose. He could then extend repentance. He could offer it. But not only for his people, Israel, it was to all who would believe. Even among the Gentiles, that's us. Now, in last service, I had one person that was a half Jew. Are there any Jews in this service? So we're pretty much just Gentiles, which is fine, as the text tells us in just a minute. When the Jews heard... Peter's report about the Gentiles believing the gospel later on, it says they glorified God, saying that God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You see, the word also is important because according to the first century Jew, all of us, they believed God had created to keep hell burning. We were the fuel for hell. So that God had also extended mercy to the Gentiles But repentance unto life, that was a big deal to the Jew. It ought to be a big deal to us as well. Amen? Yeah. His benefits extend to the ends of the earth, every nation, tongue, and tribe. And that God would really even consider granting repentance and forgiveness to a race of rebels, I think is mind-boggling. And it's less, I think, amazing to us as our culture continues down this, you know, it's plummeting morally, and we get used to it along the way. But the more we look at reality, we look at who God is, and we look at who we are, we realize that the distance between us gets greater and greater. Yeah. It's mind-boggling that he would extend himself. And because of our sin, God doesn't have to show us mercy. Justice only demands 
that we get justice. That's all that it demands for the crimes that we've committed against him. But because of his great love for us, God was moved to provide a way to make repentance and forgiveness possible. But the problem with that is there was something in the way. That's justice. It's justice. God cannot dismiss sin. Every moral infraction must be punished. Otherwise, he is not holy. In fact, he would be a coward, a moral coward, if he did not punish all sin. But because of who he is, every crime committed, a penalty must be paid. And so to meet the demands of divine justice and pay the sinner's debt, Jesus, the scriptures say, offered his life in place of the sinner and then was punished for their crimes, our crimes. And so in perfect harmony with justice, repentance and forgiveness was made available to the sinner. In accord with Peter's words, the resurrection is the only way for us to know for certain that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable for our sins. In other words, it's the seal of God's approval that it was sufficient. It's been given to us. It's been granted. And we can only know that by the resurrection. Along with granting repentance and extending forgiveness to sinners, the scriptures tell us that we experience regeneration as well through through the resurrection. Peter said this, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Peter says that through faith, we're begotten again to a living hope. And he says that comes through the resurrection. Now, Peter used the phrase begotten again. Jesus used the phrase born again, and then also born of the spirit in John chapter three, one through eight. And then Paul later said, regeneration of the Holy Spirit, Titus three, five. Now that's four different ways to say the exact same thing. But it's Peter who clarifies that regeneration occurs only through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, of course, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but the miracle of regeneration was not available. It could not occur until Jesus was risen from the dead. Why is that important, this whole born-again thing? Does, does the phrase born-again make you nervous? Some people think that if you're born-again, then you have to run around in the aisles and and do interpretive dancing and the rest. That's not what that means. Uh, Some people prefer regeneration, um, to be born of the Spirit, uh, whatever. (laughs) It's important because according to Jesus, being begotten again, being regenerate, being born again is prerequisite for entering heaven. He, He said, most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. A few verses later, he says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's John chapter three, verses three and verse eight. So, you know, it's through regeneration that the Holy Spirit comes and resides in the believer. He, he makes us alive to God. He places us in loving fellowship with God. And by his presence in us, he seals us for heaven. Seems like it's an important issue to me, to be born again, to be sealed of the Holy Spirit. But as Peter says, this can only be realized 
through the resurrection of Christ. That's it. And then there's justification, the doctrine of justification. You guys, the most precious doctrine of biblical Christianity is this doctrine, justification. That God, by his grace, would transfer the perfect moral righteousness of Jesus to the believing sinner so that he could accept the sinner really is the most profound declaration, I think, in all of Scripture. I don't think justification is the most profound miracle. I think that's the incarnation. But the most amazing thing for us is that he would declare us righteous in his sight. Listen to what Paul said. He said, but to him who does not work. Now by work there, he means moral works, moral righteousness. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. The text means this. God considers ungodly people to be righteous people the moment they put their faith in Jesus. He treats sinners as though they were saints because of their faith in Christ. I don't know, it seems pretty profound to me that a holy God, in whom John says there is no darkness at all, morally speaking, would through his grace take the righteousness of Jesus and transfer that to my account and then treat me accordingly. And the other half of that, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, is that my sin was imputed or transferred to Christ's account, and then he was punished because of my sin. There's this exchange. And all of that happened so that God could embrace me and so that I could enjoy him for eternity. It's pretty amazing. And in defense of this doctrine, uh, Paul argues for nearly two chapters that man can be acceptable to God in absolutely no other way. If sinful man is to be saved, it cannot be on the grounds of his own merit. He's just too offensive to God. But through faith, God embraces sinful man purely on the grounds of Christ's righteousness. That righteousness that he imputes to the sinner immediately through faith. There's nothing the sinner can earn or work for. There's nothing he can do to make up for his rebellion. No amount of good works can tip the scale to his favor. No amount. Apart from Christ, the sinner's doomed. There's just no hope. We need justification more than we need our next breath. But it's at the end of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, where he concludes that Jesus, he says, was, he was delivered up to the cross because of our offenses, our sins, but he was raised to life again for our justification. Romans 4.25, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, you guys, there is absolutely no justification for the sinner. And all that would remain for us is judgment. So Jesus was raised to life so that God could justify the sinner. It's amazing. Now, I want to be clear about this. Jesus' death paid my debt in full, but the benefits of his death could not be distributed until after he rose from the dead, and he most certainly did. Like I said, when he busted out of the tomb, it was like a dam breaking, and all of his benefits began to flow to the rest of the world. And of course, if Jesus did not rise, we would not rise. We would just become worm food. He had to rise in order for us to. We read this early in 1 Corinthians 15. Here it is again. Paul says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. 
you are still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 20. So if Christ did not rise from the dead, he's saying those who trusted in Christ before they died are just dead. They have nothing to look forward to. They're dead and they'll never live again. And, and if trusting in Christ does not solve the problem of death, which is the reality of all other religions, he says Christianity should be pitied. Christians rather should be pitied more than all people. They should feel sorry for us because we're fools. Yeah. Without the resurrection, trusting in Christ would be a foolish waste of time. To fully invest in something without ever enjoying its benefits is just stupid. It's ridiculous. But Jesus vacated the tomb never to return again. Now in the scriptures, his resurrection, of course, is not the, the first resurrection. Others rose before him, but they all died afterwards. Jesus rose to never die again, to never die again. He rose, he ascended, and now he's at the right hand of his father making intercession for the believer. In this passage that we just read, Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, but it's through the resurrection. It means that Jesus was the first among the rest that would rise after him and because of him never to die again. The first fruit, the, the figure of speech, you have a, a whole field to harvest, but in the old covenant, they would take the first cutting and then they would heave that at the altar as an offering to the Lord. But there was more to harvest, wasn't there? So Jesus being the first fruit, he was the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. And those who trust in him are the rest of the harvest and they follow suit with him. That's pretty sweet. He's the first part of the whole. In Colossians 1.18, Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. The first. The firstborn, implying that there's more to come. And if you're in first service of Calvary Chapel, there's always more children to come. Trust me. Okay? <laughs> so Jesus defeated death by rising from the dead. But he also defeated death for those who trust in him, guaranteeing that we would follow. And our resurrection will be a permanent one. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death and his resurrection, he said this. He says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also, John 14, 19. Because I live, you will live. Yeah, so because Jesus ever lives, and because he has imparted this life to the believer, we will ever live because of him and with him. Peter made that same connection in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. We read that earlier. You can study it further on your own. And finally, the resurrection of Christ guarantees that justice will ultimately prevail. The earth will be filled with righteousness. Okay? When Paul preached to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he warned them, saying, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31. Now I think it's kind of humorous that Paul would 
tell some of the most intelligent people in the world that they're ignorant there at the Areopagus. He tells them that all of their ideas about God and all of their various forms of worship, they're wrong. You're all dead wrong. And that God is commanding them to repent because he's appointed a day, he's set it on his calendar to judge all the world, the living and the dead, according to what is right, according to what is just. So Paul is telling them to turn away from their false religions, to abandon their immorality, and if they do not, they will be judged. Not according to what their culture might say is right or wrong, but according to God's unchangeable moral nature. This is extremely important. The objective moral realities that flow from God's nature determine what is right and wrong and set the standard for how God will judge humanity. And it cannot be otherwise. It cannot. If God judged humanity based upon social norms and constructs, or what a culture or a government thought was right, at any given moment, he would have no real standard to judge by. Okay. Morality would be really a moving target. For example, because among men, morality is a moving target. In ancient Roman and Greek culture, slaves were considered a separate race of people created by the gods to be slaves of the higher races. In some religions, in some countries today, it is completely legal to sell and to purchase a little girl, a child, so that he might, she might rather be the wife of an older man. Completely legal. Human trafficking is entirely acceptable in a number of countries. In Nazi Germany, it wasn't just legal to torture and murder Jews. It was a government mandate. In the Roman Empire, it was entirely acceptable to abandon newborns to die by exposure or to feed them to an animal. It was a norm among some Native American tribal peoples to strangle their elderly parents when they grew ill or unproductive. There was a time in American history when it was legal to enslave black people and to treat them as animals. And currently, the exact same moral reasoning that was used to justify the killing of Jews and the enslavement of blacks is being used to justify the killing of the unborn. The exact same line of reasoning. You guys, if individuals, cultures, societies, or governments get to decide what is moral, understand that every moral monstrosity that has ever been committed at one time in history was considered a virtue. If God judged based upon that, we would all be innocent. But God has an unchanging moral nature that is holy. It does not conform to any society or any moral philosophy. What is truly right and just is fixed in his nature, and what is wrong will always be contrary to it. His judgment will be righteous, and it will be final. And when he judges, there will be complete silence. There will be no deliberation, no argumentation, no debate. He will judge according to what is real. So where does that leave you? In light of this reality, where does that leave you? How will you fare on judgment day? when the all-seeing God examines your deepest secrets. As Ecclesiastes says, he will judge the secret things and every motive of every action. There will be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You will face him. There is no escaping the judgment of God, just like there's no escaping death. There is no escape. You will stand before him. You will give an account for every lawless deed you have ever committed, every false motive, every perverted thought. Nothing will be hidden from his sight. And you will be guilty as charged. And so I urge you, before that day falls upon you, flee from your sin, repent, and trust in the one who took your punishment and paid your penalty. 
He died for you and he rose again, not in hopes of condemning you, but in the desire to rescue. But you must understand, if you fail to abandon your sin and trust him, you will face his righteous wrath. I would be uncaring if I did not warn you. Do not trifle with the living God. It was no trivial matter when he sent his son to bear your guilt and to pay your debt at Calvary. But if you refuse his offer, he will turn you away to an unspeakable fate. God is currently offering rebels like us a chance for pardon. He will grant forgiveness and eternal life, but the offer will end on the day of your death or on the day that he judges. Do not delay. Until now, as Paul says, God has overlooked your ignorance, but he now commands you to repent because the day is set on which he will judge you according to what is right by Jesus Christ. And he has given you assurance of this by raising him from the dead. He is alive to judge the living and the dead. All of the provisions for your salvation have been made, and now it's your move. Choose wisely. Make the right move. Choose life, as the scriptures say, that you might live. Now, there are people here that I don't know, and I don't know that you've ever heard the gospel. You've heard it today. If, if God is moving on your heart, and you know that you're in trouble with God but you want him to rescue you, I'd love to speak with you, pray with you after service. Don't, don't delay. Okay? You're, you're here by God's providence. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Well, Lord Jesus, we, we could explore your word all day in regard to the benefits of the resurrection. That, that when you came out of the tomb, all the benefits came with you. Lord, I thank you that, that you were willing to receive all of my guilt that you bore the punishment for all of my sin. And Lord, then you called me to yourself that I might believe and receive your righteousness, Lord, as my ticket to be in your presence forever. Lord, I, I, I pray that that reality would encourage all of my brothers and sisters this morning. And for Lord, those that are outside of the faith, Lord, that you would usher them in through faith. They would trust you and receive salvation, Lord. Lord, if they leave here today without embracing you by faith, I, I just pray that, as it's been saying, the hound of heaven would not let them sleep until they come to you. So, Lord, we, we thank you. I thank you for my church family, Lord. Such a blessing. And I pray that today you just encourage their hearts and help them to celebrate with each other. Rejoice. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Love you guys. Lord bless you.